Good morning. This is Greg Roman on Middle East Forum Century Radio here on WWDB 860 AM Talk Radio Philadelphia. It's been two weeks since we've been back on the air, last week playing a reloop of our Cutter Conference, but now we're back in the studio here at the end of February, and we are six weeks away from the Israeli general election, where I will be broadcasting live from Jerusalem next week, covering all of the up-to-date developments in Israel's most modern democratic system, at least the most modern for that of the Middle East. We have an exciting program today, being joined by Winfield Myers, the director of Campus Watch, and Samantha Mandelis, the director of Islamist Watch's events monitoring program. But before we get into that, I thought we'd go over a little bit of the most recent developments in Middle Eastern news, since we haven't had too much time to talk about it for the past few weeks. First, to Iran. The Iranian foreign minister, Mohammad Javad Zarif, resigned on Monday of this week, saying, I'm apologizing to you for all the shortcomings in the past few years as foreign minister. I thank the Iranian nations and officials. He wrote on Instagram, it's nice that he was able to resign on a platform that 99% of Iranians don't have access to. That just shows you the pure serendipity of the moment. But he's apologizing for his actions as the foreign minister. Let's go over a brief review of his career history since he was sworn into office with the election of Hassan Rouhani, the president of Iran in 2013, and see exactly how we got to this point. The first development that Zarif was known for, more than any other, was that of the Iran deal, or the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action. He was able to corral, hoodwink, and pull the wool over the eyes of the five permanent members of the Security Councils of the United Nations Security Council and Germany. And he was able to sell a deal that would enable Iran to get a nuclear weapon, a permissible nuclear program, within 10 years of that deal's signing. He was able to, in the wake of biting sanctions, in the wake of an economy that was spiraling out of control, still be able to get a deal that was beneficial for the Iranians to the chagrin of the West. And the West is still buying into this, except for the United States, which pulled out of the deal in May of last year. So if he's apologizing for getting a deal that was good for the Iranians and their nuclear program, that says one to two things about the Iranian polity's position regarding its nuclear program. Number one, and this is inconceivable, they would have wanted to abandon it. That would have been the better deal, maybe, if they were looking towards the track of non-proliferation. And I hardly believe that there's anyone in Iran that's not behind a united nuclear program. But the more pernicious and more likely outcome was that they entered into the deal at all. Because it wasn't just certain segments of the United States and of the West that was against this deal because of the very fact that it would permit Iran to get a nuclear program within a 10-year time span. But there were actors in Iran, the so-called hardliners, or the harder-line individuals than the already harder-line government, that did not want to give one inch on their nuclear program and are even advocating for the immediate development of a bomb. And with Zarif resigning, does this mean that the Iranians are one step closer to obtaining a nuclear breakout capability? Meaning, 
that when the Ayatollah gives the signal, within 90 days, the Iranians would be able to get a bomb. Now, I have no sorrow lost on the fact that Mr. Zarif is no longer in office. Beyond the nuclear program, he was also one of the main vindicators and agitators against Western sentiment in his country, offering a foil by dealing with Ivanov, the foreign minister of Russia, by dealing with Erdogan, the president of Turkey, and by propping up the eight-year civil war going on within Syria that Bashar al-Assad, the president of that country, was able to win, giving a victory lap only yesterday on his first overseas visit except for Russia by parading around the Iranian capital with the president of Iran and the Ayatollah. Beyond Zarif's diplomatic accomplishments or his ingenious diplomatic accomplishments, he was also able to, in not thick-accented Persian English, but in a very mellow manner, provide key segues to negotiating other Iranian-American issues beyond that of the nuclear program. He was able to obtain billions of dollars in payments from the Hague War Crimes Tribunal. He was able to establish a certain modicum of trade for the Iranian economy. And he was also able to deny, successfully in some cases, even though he was lying through his teeth, the Iranian involvement in terror attacks against the West. With his resignation, what does this portend for the rest of us? The most likely candidate to become the new foreign minister is the current chief of staff of President Rouhani, which may point to the fact that this may have been an intra-cabinet battle and not something between the hardliners and those who are less hardline yet still extremely severe. Or it might mean that the most acknowledgeable, recognizable face of Iran in the West will be replaced with someone who is far less eloquent far less taciturn, and much more devious. And if that's the case, it's an indicator of where the region is headed. In other news, we find in Lebanon right now that there has finally been a European nation which has stood up to declare Hezbollah, and not just its military wing, but the entire Shia terror organization as just that, a terrorist organization. Reporting from Reuters, Britain said on Monday it plans to ban all wings of Hezbollah due to the destabilizing influence in the Middle East, classing the Lebanese Islamist movement as a terrorist organization. London has already prescribed Hezbollah's external security unit and its military wing in 2001 and 2008 respectively, but now wants to outlaw its political arm too. The British ban, which will come into force on Friday, subject to parliamentary approval, means anyone who is a member of Hezbollah or invites support will be committing a criminal offense with a potential sentence of up to 10 years in jail. Explaining its decision, the British government said the organization continued to amass weapons in contravention of UN Security Council resolutions, while its support for Syrian President Bashar al-Assad had prolonged the conflict and the regime's brutal and violent repression of the Syrian people. In Britain, Hezbollah has been a topic of internal political controversy, with opposition leader Jeremy Corbyn criticized by opponents for once calling the group friends. Where do we see this Labor Party? Hamas and Hezbollah friends, Israel and the United States enemies, Prime Minister Theresa May said last week in Parliament. 
The issue with Hezbollah being a subject of debate in the United Kingdom is not a problem for Hezbollah. We know that they have committed hundreds and hundreds of attacks against Western targets, leading to the deaths of thousands of Westerners. What is of an egregious nature in this case is the fact that there is a mainstream or a once mainstream liberal with a small case L socialist party, which is having a debate within its own ranks about calling an organization that's suicide bombs, that launches rocket attacks against civilian population centers, that supports genocide in Syria on whether or not they are a terror organization. Now, it doesn't just start with the rot at the top with Jeremy Corbyn saying that this organization or its members were once considered his friends. But the fact that he has given the ability for members of his party to so-called, quote-unquote, vote their conscience on this issue, their conscience being whether they are friends with terrorists or if they're willing to look into the mirror and recognize that this organization is one that is nefarious, it is bloodthirsty, and it seeks the destruction of the West. More with Samantha Mandelis after these messages. The Middle East Forum promotes American interests in the Middle East and protects Western values from Middle Eastern threats. The Forum sees the region with its profusion of dictatorships, radical ideologies, existential conflicts, and weapons of mass destruction as a major source of problems for the United States. Accordingly, we urge bold measures to protect Americans and their allies. Read more at www.meforum.org or check us out on Twitter at MEForum, the Middle East Forum, protecting your interests. Every day, the men and women of the United States Marine Corps demonstrate their commitment to defend the American way of life. Since 1775, we have served our nation as a force in readiness. From combat operations to humanitarian assistance in every corner of the world. No matter where the mission takes us today or wherever our country needs us tomorrow, we always remember the land we call home. As Marines, we take a stand for each other for our nation, for us all, the few, the proud, the Marines. Welcome back to Middle East Forum Century Radio here on WWDB 860 AM Philadelphia Talk. We are now joined by Samantha Mandelis the Islamist Watch Project Research Coordinator, and recently having appeared on stage at the Middle East Forum's February 6th Cutter U.S. Ally or Global Menace Conference in Washington, D.C. Samantha, calling in from Boston. Welcome back to the program. Thanks, Greg. It's really great to be here again. And thanks for coming back on. So I thought what we would do is wrap up the month of February, as we are now getting into March, with a look at what Islamist events have come on your radar that took place in the past month, and also maybe get a little bit of a forecast of what we can expect in March. The first one that I'd like to start off with, just to remind our listeners about the most recent Islamist elected member of Congress's controversy in Jacksonville, Florida 
is starting off with Ilhan Omar in an event that she was supposed to have gone to with Islamic Relief in Florida, or maybe she canceled, but you can provide us the latest update. Right. So um, this event uh, with Islamist Relief, or excuse me, Islamic Relief, um, I that's think that maybe, maybe we should encourage them to change their name. I'm sorry? Maybe we should encourage them to change their name to Islamist Relief. Yeah, actually, that's probably true. It would be more transparent. Um, so, in any case, Islamic Relief is an organization that purports to be a humanitarian group. It's essentially a franchise, a humanitarian franchise that has branches all over the world. Um, and it purports to do humanitarian work in all kinds of different sort of disaster sectors. So whether that's Haiti, whether that's in um, Myanmar, Bangladesh, um, Islamist, uh, Islamic Relief sort of has volunteers that do work. And we can sort of look at that as a, as a type of dawah as you were, a type of proselytization. So they use um, these disaster works to sort of legitimize their image. And in the meantime, kind of in the background, they hire and maintain staff that have been openly anti-Semitic, openly homophobic, um, and just generally bigoted. And, and one, of these so staff, one of these staff members who I believe that your project caught on social media making very, very, very insensitive and even on borderline hateful and ethnocentric comments against Jews was scheduled to appear on stage with this member of Congress? That's absolutely right. Um, so Yusuf Abdallah is an official in Islamic Relief USA. And um, we found through our open source research that he has used his social media accounts to post all kinds of really um, poisonous anti-Semitic rhetoric, um, talking about uh, you know those traditional motifs of anti-Jewish uh, ideologies, so Jewish power, blood libel, things like this. So um, Representative Omar was scheduled to appear at this event with Yosef Abdullah. Samantha? Hello? Yeah, we're, we're listening. Oh, okay. Um, <laughs> so, uh, so in any case, the event was over this weekend. And um, as far as we know, uh, Ilhan Omar did appear at this event. Um, and so the backlash that was created due to uh, the unearthing of Yosef Abdallah's anti-Semitism does not appear to have deterred her, um, nor did she offer any comment about his history of anti-Semitic agitation online. So she may have deleted her anti-Semitic tweets, but her anti-Semitism still remains in the ether. That's correct. Um, she did delete those tweets about APAC, 
which echo the the uh, Jewish the the anti-Jewish motif of Jewish power and Jewish money controlling American government. Um, but she did not uh, she did not acknowledge her stage partners or Islamic release uh, demonstrable history of anti-Semitism nor the organization's long history of connections to overseas terrorist organizations. Well, even though she still appeared at this event, maybe the silver lining of the advocacy that you guys have been putting forward for the past month is the fact that Americans are now more aware of what exactly is behind Islamic Relief's true intent. I mean, a, a report that went out, I believe, in the Washington Times was followed up in the Jerusalem Post, and even some of the research that you guys had sourced appeared in a column in The Hill which had shown that Islamic Relief is under investigation in Tunisia for being linked to terrorist elements. They are considered a terror organization by Israel, Egypt, the United Arab Emirates, and even Saudi Arabia, I think. They are banned from working with the Rohingya uh, Muslim population in, in, in uh, Bangladesh because of their tendency to radicalize individuals that they work with. So they might be rebuilding houses in hurricane-struck areas, but at the same time, there is now a greater awareness of what this organization's true intent is. Now, moving on beyond the Islamic Relief example, there was also a conference that took place with the Muslim Action Society Islamic Circle of North America. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? What exactly are the two organizations and why should we care about them? Right. Okay. So, the Muslim American Society works with the Islamic Circle of North America twice a year to organize massive Islamist conferences. So, in December every year, the Muslim American Society, which is a essentially a, an American Muslim Brotherhood-related organization, um, works with ICNA, which is a Jamate Islami related organization. So you have these two groups that originated in different parts of the world with different Islamist ideologies working together for the sake of Islamism and Islamist ideals. So, so they're, they're, they're getting together, yeah. they're doing this conference twice a year. What are they talking about? They talk about all kinds of things. Um, one of the most poisonous sessions, inevitably, at mass ICNA conferences are sessions that are led by American Muslims for Palestine and other quote-unquote Palestine advocacy groups. So in those sessions, you'll find speakers like um, Abdullah Marouf, who is a Turkey-based professor who uses his Twitter to tweet um, similar anti-Jewish motifs as Yusuf Abdallah at Islamic Relief, for example. Now, Mass Ikna and AMP know about uh, Yusuf Abdallah's social media activity, and we know they know because we alert them. But what, what, what do you mean you alert them? You get in touch with their offices? You, I, I know that, you know, not, not to segue away from this for a second or, or to digress, but there is a uh, newsletter that you put out once a month, which catalogs all of the Islamist anti-Semitic events and, and hate-based events that take place in the United States. And then you ask organizations for comment. Can you elaborate a little bit on that? Yeah, that's exactly right. 
So we monitor um, all kinds of Islamist hate speech, whether that's anti-Semitic, homophobic, misogynistic, or even anti-minority uh, Muslim sect, like anti-Ahmadiyya, for instance. Much of that hate speech actually comes from the employees of Islamist organizations themselves. So we contact groups like the Council on American Relations, a supposed the, the Council on American Islamic focus. Relations. Yes, sir. The Council on American Islamic Relations or CARE. So we contact them as a supposed civil rights organization and ask them for condemnation of this Islamist hate speech, just as they condemn uh, far-right hate speech, for, for instance. Almost always, they ignore these instances. They choose not to comment, and they look the other way. But didn't you uh, cause a little bit of an uproar in New Jersey when you asked a, uh, a speaker for uh, CARE? I believe, it was, I believe it was Ibrahim Hooper, their former director of communications, or Corey Saylor, their current director of communications, about an event that took place. And then they condemned it, and then you brought that condemnation to the event that had actually done it. And you caused a little bit of an intra-Islamist uh, uproar. We did. It was fascinating. So Jim Sues, who is the director of CARE's New Jersey branch, condemned a speech made by an American Muslims for Palestine staff member, AMP, in which the staff member echoed old anti-Jewish tropes like, you know, today's Jews are not really Jews, they're descendants of Russian Khazar tribes. So these are old anti-Semitic falsehoods that are being echoed now by Islamists. Jim appropriately condemned this speech, and we thought in the interest of integrity that we should publicize that CARE did the right thing and condemned AMP and its staff member for these sentiments. We advertised that documentation on Facebook, and AMP and CARE both were attacked by Islamists online saying that they were, quote, brown-nosing to Islamophobes, which caused CARE to retract its condemnation publicly. So, so now CARE is endorsing anti-Semitism or they're not making a statement on anti-Semitism? These guys are really grand in terms of when it comes to showing their true colors and they're called out by their own backbenchers and their own supporters, they choose to stand on the side of anti-Semites and individuals who have a, uh, anathematic uh, behavior towards American values rather than those who are in the, the, the vein of a true Western liberal democracy. I mean, it's really grand. So we, we, we've gone over two events that took place. We talked about a member of Congress. We talked about some hypocrisy within the Islamist ranks. Where do we move forward from here? You're, you're currently um, keeping track and bringing to uh, the public's awareness future Islamist events that are taking place. What are one or two that we should be aware of? Right. So I mentioned that MASS and ICNA work together twice a year to organize their large conferences. 
December's was the math-led Mass ICNA conference. Now, in April, you have the ICNA-led ICNA Math Conference. So that's taking place at the Walter E. Washington Convention Center in Washington, D.C. this year. And we should expect probably 20,000 uh, Muslim attendees coming to the area to listen to a wide variety of Islamist speakers um, talking about uh, uh, anti-Israel agitation, uh, campaigning against anti-BDS legislation, um, working to influence local, state, and national uh, legislative bodies, all kinds of things. Great. Um, yeah. <laughs> no, no, I, I was just going to say, like, they're trying to use these platforms as a way in which to develop their own, um, I don't want to call it a codex, but their own set of ideas, which they then go and they advocate for. Remember, there was the uh, Islamist Day on the Hill that took place last year in May, and we did a really big report about the uh, the nature of the actors that were going to advocate for alleged American Muslim issues, but and they, in fact, turned out to be anti-American Islamist issues. So you're, you're doing that in terms of monitoring, but is there a way to fill the gap between Muslims in America and non-Muslims in America and then bifurcate the Muslim population by the very small percentage who claims to represent American Islam, but there's mm -hmm. a way to find more um, mainstream, moderate, uh, you know, ex acknowledging it's okay to go to the mosque five times a day. It's okay to keep halal. It's okay to do your hijra and to do hajj and to uh, give pay your zakat and everything that are fun the fundamental tenets of Islam. We're we're okay with that mm -hmm. here on this program. We're okay with that the Middle East form. But once you start getting into the vitriol, which when you have to balance between being an American and fulfilling your American obligations versus choosing to be an Islamist and becoming anti-American. That's where we have a problem. So mm -hmm. how do you embrace the moderate and expunge the extreme? Well, there are a lot of challenges in doing that, but one of the things that we really try to do is to seek out, you know, those ordinary American Muslims who, like you said, are interested in practicing Muslim ritual and tradition, but are also interested in being good American citizens. And we try to really raise their voices and support those voices, publish their writing, um, work with them on uh, interfaith efforts, connect them with uh, Jewish communities, Christian communities that are also interested in doing interfaith work. Um, so we, we find that those voices are often steamrolled by, like you said, this minority Islamist movement that does not have a mandate, but likes to position itself as though it does. And so those voices are silenced. So one of the things that we can do as Americans is to really um, support those voices, make sure that they know that they have support outside the Muslim community so that they feel more comfortable doing work within the Muslim community to um, help their fellow Muslims, you know, stand up against Islamism, as well as being good Muslims and and observing Muslim ritual. Samantha you Mandelis, know, so, thanks for joining us today. 
Thank you so much, Greg. It was really a pleasure. After these messages, Winfield Myers. So Winfield will be joining us right after we get from back from the commercial break, and he'll be on. The intellectual backbone of American Middle East studies has provided a rational excuse for individuals trying to promote an anti-American agenda. We see that those individuals who are in Islamic studies and American Middle East studies programs at some of the most major American universities find themselves justifying the behavior of America's enemies overseas and promoting domestic threats that harm us here at home. If you want to go and learn more about Campus Watch, the Reader's Digest of American Middle East studies, check us out on Campus Watch at www.campus-watch.org. Take a look under your bed. Find stuff under there? What about jobs? No? Now try your basement. There's a pair of overalls that overall you're not so into anymore. A perfectly good laptop that hasn't seen your lap in months. And even more stuff, but still no jobs? Well, you really have both. See, stuff is defined as household articles considered as a group. Sometimes this stuff is no longer needed. Wait, no longer needed? That can't be right. Because remember those jobs you were looking for? Those are really needed. And they're the stuff inside your stuff. Even inside that winter coat that moved with you to Phoenix. Our job is to unlock those jobs. And it starts when you donate your stuff to your local Goodwill. Here's how we do it. When you donate to Goodwill, we sell your stuff to provide job training for people right here in your community. So just by teaming up with Goodwill, you help create jobs. And isn't that worth parting with the leftover guitar from your 80s cover band? Goodwill. Donate stuff. Create jobs. Find your nearest donation center at Goodwill.org. A message from Goodwill and the Ad Council. Welcome back to Middle East Forum Century Radio here on WWDB 860 AM Philadelphia Talk. We're now joined by Winfield Myers, the director of the Middle East Forum's Campus Watch program, bringing a little bit more honesty every day to America's Middle East and Islamic Studies programs at universities and colleges. Winfield, welcome back to the program. Thank you, Greg. It's great to be here. So I wanted to start us off continuing on Samantha's comments that she made at the first uh, top of the hour now at the bottom of the hour, by looking at this idea that there are dozens of organizations in this country which are promoting uh, quite anti-American ideas, pro-Islamist ideas, but they're not just doing it in a vacuum because these ideas have to come from somewhere and there have to be individuals who are legitimating those ideas. Now, the work that you do looks at every American Middle East and Islamic studies program, and you tell us publicly what are the good, what are the bad, and certainly what are the ugly. But this idea that these uh, opinions that they're expressing don't exist in the vacuum, I think are um, you know, kind of summed up just by looking at the idea that politics fall, flows downstream from culture. But I think Dan McLaughlin really puts it well in giving us a rubric to start this discussion. And, and usually when you and I speak, it's about what are the most uh, latest you know, incidents on campus that we should be aware of. But let's have a much larger sort of meta conversation on, on what's the, the backbone of these ideas which are being put forward and, and, and what's the general theme and, and, and where they fall in the American discourse today. So, so McLaughlin um, you know, sort of uh, uh, wraps up the idea um, starting off on a Peter Beinart quote, and then we'll get to McLaughlin. Beinart gave a speech at CPAC where um, uh, he was summarizing Dana Loesch, someone who would used to speak there, where, where he said, in 15 minutes, 
an individual was barely able to mention the legislative process. Instead, she mostly discussed the ways in which journalists and corporations defame and persecute the supporters of gun rights. Finally, near the end of the speech, as to explain its focus, Loesch declared, Always remember, politics is downstream from culture. If it's going to happen in culture first before it happens in politics. Now, this idea was wrapped up by McLaughlin, where he said three things. One, people's political opinions are mostly not thought out or analytical so much as an expression of what they think is valuable, cool, scary, smart, stupid, or impressive to their friends. Two, people generally put more of their hearts and free time into cultural pursuits, from mass media and video game consumption to churches, schools, museums, gun clubs, bowling leagues, more than political ones. So the attitudes that pervade that that the larger spaces of their lives affect than the smaller ones are not just in what they believe, but who they know and trust. And three, young people in particular are much more into getting their values and their facts from cultural rather than explicitly political sources. So let's break that down for a second. Your opinion has to be cool. It's who you believe, not what you believe. And you're looking more at facts from what comes out of the cultural mores rather than what comes out of political opinions. Transfer this idea to that of where Islamist uh, 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 discourse and actors get their ideas from the American campus and give us an analysis of how MES and Islamist and Islamic studies programs affect that. Yeah, I think that's exactly what you said is precisely correct. The um, And I'm getting the echo, Greg. I hope you're not, but I'm going to... Try something. Okay, I was on a head. I hope you didn't get a, a um, echo. As you say, politics is, is downstream from culture, and the the uh, people have remarked now for many decades that virtually all bad ideas in the culture today stem from universities. That's not completely true. It's a little unfair, but so many of the radical ideas that we now see uh, nationwide in, in politics. Uh, say the, the new Green Deal of uh, Alexandro Casio Cortez, the new darling of the media, which people are afraid to criticize. People on the left are, in particular, <clears throat> and even get angry if they're asked questions about it because it's so it's transparently mad. But they're afraid that their political futures will be in jeopardy if they dare criticize it. Where do these kind of ideas come from? Uh, well, anyone who's spent a lot of time uh, either on American campuses or studying higher education for many years, uh, understand that these kinds of ideas were current on American campuses 20, 30 years ago. Uh, they're really not shocking in as much as they exist and they were bandied about in faculty lounges and in classrooms, uh, scholarly publications, whatever the field. It can be climate change, it can be Middle East studies, it can be American history. Um, a lot of what is shocking the public today has long since been uh, sort of complacently taught and accepted on campuses. <clears throat> For them to now be uh, nationwide ideas, widely accepted, uh, debated seriously, no matter how intellectually unfounded they are, uh, goes to your point. They're they're cool. It's who is saying it. In this case, uh, you know, an, an attractive and um, uh, bubbly uh, representative or someone who is a member of a victimology group uh, like Rashid Tlaib, you mentioned before, Ilhan Omar, the new representatives from uh, Michigan and Minnesota, respectively, who are voicing pro-Islamist, anti-Semitic, anti-American ideas now in Congress, not, not from the sidelines in universities, but from, from the Congress itself. 
shows how the the intellectually unsound, often um, morally uh, abhorrent, and certainly economically unfeasible ideas that originate in universities have now entered the mainstream. And how did they do that? Well, they did it through edu- miseducating, maleducating several generations of students. And in the case of, uh, for example, uh, the, the two ladies I mentioned a moment ago, Taleb and, and Omar, um, their blatantly anti-Semitic statements, um, I'm not saying they had to learn them on American campuses, but what Middle East Studies has done is legitimize uh, many of those ideas. They've legitimized through years and years and years of repetition of uh, attacking Israel, of attacking America, of attacking Western ideas. They have legitimized extremism so that a lot of the students who are, have graduated in the last 20 years from college don't know that they have been maleducated. It's the sea they swim in. They don't understand uh, how maleducated they are. Now, many of them will have an epiphany. Uh, we hope they'll read Campus Watch and the other Middle East Forum publications and those of our allies and understand just how, how poorly they have been taught. But for many of them, they are, um, <clears throat> they are unaware of how extremist what they say is, and that's, I think, one of the reasons why they say it so unashamedly and why they react so vitriolically when they are challenged. Uh, they're not well-grounded in facts, as you just point out. Uh, this has nothing to do with facts, per se. It has nothing to do with empirical facts, with rigorous study, with rigorous debate, so that you get rid of all the fluff and the bad ideas and the detritus and end up with the, with the kernel of truth. Uh, instead, uh, what they run on is the propaganda that they've been given in classrooms, in books, uh, through the mass culture now, through Hollywood, uh, television, and they're uh, offended when anyone has the temerity to disagree with these, for them, uh, self-evident truths uh, that they've never considered rigorously, but which they have been taught are morally upright so that when you disagree with them, you're not only wrong intellectually, in fact, they probably don't even have a, a concept of that, you're evil. I mean, you need to be silenced, you need to be censored, you need to be shouted down, whether you're a speaker on campus, uh, speaking something that is not um, accepted by the uh, uh, those who rule the campuses, <clears throat> or whether you're a professor who says something out of line, meaning speaks the truth, and uh, are called out by your uh, peers, not supported by your dean, not supported by the administration. Whether you're a student, we saw the student the other day, and you know the the um, the guy who got punched in the face at Berkeley, um, violent assaults. Uh, these are all actions of people who are convinced utterly, you know, with no uh, self-awareness, really, no, no examination of conscience, that they are completely correct, um, that the future of the world literally depends on their victory, and that those who oppose them are evil, are sort of like vermin, and need to be silenced. And, of course, the great fear that anybody who knows history should have about this is that when, <clears throat> when people are demonized to the point that their opinions can't be voiced, and they are seen as uh, open to violence, then they become liable for what? What's next? What's the next, what's the next uh, chapter in this? Punch them in the face, stab them, shoot them, round them up? What, you know, what sense? I don't mean <laughs> to sound alarmist, but it's a, um, the trajectory. Who 20 years ago would have thought that we would have seen the kind of ideas that are conversant in, in uh, or current, excuse me, in, in mass culture that we have already? 
You know, things that were seen as outliers, as crazy, are now seen as almost mainstream. So maybe and maybe it's time to put maybe it's time to put forward an alternative idea of what the modern university should look like, or at least get back to the system that had worked previously. Now, I want to point you to an article that Victor Davis Hanson wrote in the National Review, a really stellar essay titled, The Modern University is Failing Students in Every Respect, that he wrote in April of 2015. And he defines the, um, the need for the modern university to cover four things. Number one, General education core classes taught students how to reason inductively and impart in an aesthetic sense through acquiring the knowledge of the great Western uh, uh, leader, thought leaders. Two, campuses encouraged edgy speech and raucous expression and exposure to all sorts of weird ideas and mostly unpopular thoughts. Three, Four years of college trained students for productive careers. Implicit was the university's assurance that its degree was a wise career investment. And four, universities were not monopolistic price gougers. They sought affordability to allow access to a broad middle class and had neither federal subsidies nor lots of money. Now, if we kind of break down these four ideas, number one, that you have to have a general education. I mean, there are individuals now who are going to university to learn about race and resistance studies and hoping to make a career out of this. We can point to our friend Rabab Abdul Hadi in uh, in uh, UC um, in uh, UC uh, yeah, uh, yeah San Francisco State University. Yeah. The second, the idea that campuses are encouraging edgy speech and raucous expression. You're right, Winfield. When it became impermissible to discuss these ideas in four years of your undergraduate education or extending that thought through your graduate and your doctoral studies, when you leave the university or even when you stay in it and you get tenure, your students and those students who you studied with and those students who are now your peers are taking those same ideas and extending it into real life, into the modern expression of the way that we discuss American issues on a day-to-day basis. And if you, God forbid, raise an opinion which is contrarian, you're shut down. In terms of being able to have students that are being trained for productive careers, we find entire uh, uh, milieus of professorial conduct right now in one way that they have adopted one line of thought rather than having a plethora of diverse opinions. And lastly, in terms of being able to be affordable, the craziest people come out of the most wealthy universities. I mean, if you look at everyone right now with a Harvard, a Yale, or a Georgetown degree, you find that they're leading American foreign policy. And at least that fourth estate of the, the I don't want to say the deep state, but those who were guiding American foreign policy for the longest of time during the Obama administration gave us some of our worst results. So taking those four ideas, how would you sort of transpose the problems that we have in American culture today, specifically as it comes with those ideas that are being cheered on by Islamists, like those in Congress? And on the other hand, what's the solution to fix it? Well, you know, to transpose them like that, I mean, they're if you mean how are the ideas being moved from university how are they being to, transferred from the university campus yeah. into the general population well, i think as we say that you graduate students who are maleducated they're poorly educated to begin with and so uh, i would sum it up i'm trained as an historian and so um, one principal problem that you see with a lot of students is that they have no historical perspective uh, for them every day is brand new and as i used to tell students when i was teaching years ago the problem about not knowing any history, any literature from the past, any philosophy from the past, 
and I don't mean just 100 years ago, I mean from 1,000, 2,000, 3,000 years ago, is that it makes you a slave to the present. So you're a sucker for every Tom, Dick, and Harry who comes along with a new scheme to sell. And I think that's what we see in the case of, uh, of someone like Cortez, uh, Ocasio-Cortez, for example, and many others, is that they clearly have absolutely no grounding whatsoever in history and in anything that has occurred before their birth, almost. And that makes them uh, susceptible for a brand new idea. Great, I have a new scheme here. Look, we can save the world. And you say, yeah, this is cool. This is great. Let's go save the world. And you really believe this. They're not being cynics. They're as sincere as anybody can be when they say this because they don't. They literally don't know anything about the past. Uh, and this has been going on, again, for decades and decades, the, the evisceration of the core curriculum, the evisceration, the removal of requirements to take American history, to take world history, European history. So you're graduating several generations of students by now who have been schooled in either victimology studies of some sort, uh, the various disciplines, and, and increasingly we see that this is becoming the case in Middle East studies, that exists not to arrive at truth, not to study rigorously, as I say, and to research deeply into a problem to answer a question, but that are literally funded in order to be political movements. They are political movements within the university, uh, various minority studies. And it doesn't mean they all have to be that way. There are ways to approach these subjects that can be rigorous and useful, but that's very rarely the case. And so you have students coming out into the broader public now, taking jobs as you say, in government, but doing all sorts of things, uh, teaching in public schools. Uh, I would say K through 12 education is in the state it's in uh, largely because of the education colleges. And this was something I remember discussing as a student in the 1980s. This is not a new problem uh, in which you had not only radical sort of far left professors teaching uh, future teachers, future teachers in public schools, but um, also substituting substantive subjects such as history or mathematics or chemistry or whatever you might go, uh, be going out to teach with methodological courses that taught you how to teach rather than teaching you what to teach. So you put all this into the mix and you can see that it's a recipe for producing millions of U.S. citizens who don't know American history, who don't, they assume that the, the peace and the affluence that we enjoy is the way things have always been. And they assume that uh, any injustices that exist in our culture today and in our society today uh, are evidence not that we have come a long way and solved many, many injustices, even though there are more to solve, but that we are founded on evil, that this is an evil society, that it must be torn down and rebuilt, or in the green plan that you either tear down and rebuild every building in the country, you know, the utopian schemes like this in which they are not grounded in reality because they haven't really been taught uh, any history, anything about the past. They're 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 afloat. Now this so is this is how this is how they they justify it. We find uh, Alexandria Ocasio Cortez. Uh, she's in an argument on Twitter here. She says, "If you don't like the Green New Deal, then come up with your own ambitious on-scale proposal to address the global climate crisis. Until then, and this is the key part: we're in charge." And you're just shouting from the cheap seats. She sounds more like Chairman Mao. 
than someone someone who's offering a, a proposal for a new idea. And there have been plenty of other uh, climate change proposals that have been put forth both by this government, by previous governments, by European governments, by other private actors. And I think the question is here is this is a private initiative versus something that should be led by the government. Or maybe it's a hybrid model, public-private partnership. But I don't want to focus too much on that. That's a little out of our wheelhouse. But maybe we can use yeah. it as an example for how do we untangle, how do we unmesh this uh, four-decade-long problem of having the university act as the incubator for these extreme ideas, and how do we get back to a sense of normalcy? Yeah, that, that's, that's a crucial uh, crucial point. And I would just note, real quickly, you mentioned Chairman Mao. What did the Cultural Revolution in China attempt to do? Wipe out the past. Uh, you, uh, uh, people who are ignorant of their past are susceptible to whatever schemes an authoritarian or totalitarian government wants to put forward. So that should be something our listeners keep in mind. As to what to do for the universities, you know, this is an enormous problem that's systemic uh, down into the administrative state of the universities today, uh, to the composition of the professoriate, to the fact that over half of people teaching in universities today are not on tenure track. Many of them are part-time or they are um, temporary. Uh, professors. So most of the people teaching undergraduates are not, in fact, tenured today. It's a very insecure, um, poverty-stricken way to make a living. That's why a lot of us are not in it. And it's um, the, the federal funding of universities comes into play with this, with jacking up the tuition. Uh, it's not a coincidence that tuition is so high uh, and, and began to grow exponentially once the federal government almost took over the running of universities. Uh, meaning that they, they funnel billions and billions and billions of tax dollars into universities every year. So that universities can charge pretty much anything they want because the feds are going to cover the money. And uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a pernicious system. There is a, a fellow who named Warren Treadgold, a Harvard-trained a Byzantine historian who has taught at a variety of, of universities, who wrote a book uh, this past summer uh, called The University We Need. And Treadgold puts forward an idea that I hope some billionaire will read his book and that he can talk to and will pick it up, because among all of his critiques of the universities, he proposes that we need someone who is the equivalent of Leyland Stanford, say, or John D. Rockefeller. Stanford, of course, founded Leyland Stanford Junior University, now Stanford <laughs> University. Uh, John D. Rockefeller founded the University of Chicago. And he says, where are our billionaires? And he doesn't mean by that Bill Gates or uh, Pierre Omidyar or various others who are to the left of the spectrum, but where are some billionaires or at least very wealthy people who can pool their resources and create a new research university modeled on Princeton, for example, that has a very good endowment, uh, a campus probably somewhere around Washington is what he recommends because it's in the center of the world there now, unfortunately, and um, will draw in those remaining professors who are many of them who are dedicated to rigorous research, rigorous teaching, who are not politicized, and we can now, in his way, re have a rebirth of the university um, by founding a new institute, which is what a lot of these people had in mind, and they did it. I mean, Stanford and uh, Rockefeller founded these now great research universities in order to revitalize uh, higher education and, of course, to put big research universities in places where they didn't exist at that time. So that's his, that's one solution, find your billionaires, get them to found new schools. You know, there are a lot of smaller colleges that have been founded around the country in the last... Right. there's uh, Hillsdale, Claremont, Liberty, there's a few yeah, others which have Hill, different... Hillsdale's old, really, but, uh, but yeah, it's, it's going it's to a different direction, that's right, or, or various religious schools 
that have been founded um, that can fill that gap to some degree. Uh, at the end of the day, though, the percentage of students who can uh, attend uh, Thomas Aquinas College, for example, which didn't exist that many years ago out in, in California, or uh, Hillsdale as, as it exists now, or Grove City and others, the number of, of students who are going to attend those is still a fraction of the overall U.S. undergraduate population. Um, how do you do it? You also can get conservatives as presidents of universities. Demand, write your legislators. If you have a big state university in your, uh, near you, in, uh, in your state, and virtually every state does, um, demand better leadership. Demand leadership that can be held accountable for the self-destructive um, politics that, that are, we find on universities today that we have been discussing. It doesn't mean everybody has to be a lackey for any uh, U.S. administration or has to uncritically praise America. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about rigorous, truth-seeking research that does not seek to tear down the country that makes their existence possible. Winfield, and, we've uh, got about three, four minutes left. Is there any uh, professor of the week that you would like to share with us in terms of someone who has really uh, you know, been extra special <laughs> this week or this month <laughs> in terms of, of their behavior on campus? You know, probably you mentioned her already, Rabab Abduhadi, who never uh, ceases to uh, get her name into the news. She's now suing her university, San Francisco State University. Um, a guy named Leslie Wong was for long the president there, and he backed her to the hilt all the time, uh, no matter how many, uh, she said, Zionists are not welcome on campus, for example. She wrote that on the, um, her department's uh, official Facebook page. She um, is constantly agitating against anyone who has the temerity to disagree with her on anything, not, not to debate them, but to shut them down. That's really the way people like this operate. And now she's suing her school, and, and she's now turned against Leslie Wong, her erstwhile ally. Um, you kind of chuckle when you said this. One of, one of the things you'll note about the, um, the far left on campus as well as in politics is that they inevitably uh, eat their own. That is, they shoot the Mensheviks, just as the Bolsheviks shot the Mensheviks, the, the moderates, so-called. Uh, so will these people turn against each other. That may offer us a little uh, room for hope as these internecine warfares within the left, within the academic left, um, carry on. Traditionally, unfortunately, what it's usually led to is a, a further radicalization because the radicals inevitably come out on top. But, you know, maybe that look, look at campuses that you know about if you're a listener and uh, look for uh, areas to intervene, either if you're a donor or if you can write your legislators. Uh, get involved in this. It isn't going to repair itself. It's just going to continue to decline. Winfield Myers, thank you. After thank these you. messages, our final thoughts. Fascism was the danger to American interests in the early 20th century, communism in the last half of that century, and in the 21st century, we find our new ideological enemy, Islamism. Islamist Watch argues that violence is not the only or even the best way to apply Islamist ideas in Western liberal democracies. Islamist Watch monitors and exposes the growing influence of non-violent radical Islamist groups in the West while empowering moderate Muslims. Radical Islam is the problem. Mainstream Islam is the solution. Read more at www.islamist-watchwatch.org or check us out on Twitter at Islamist Watch. Introducing the YMCA. What, you already know the Y? Or so you think. Sure, you know the Y for a swim, a workout, even a game of hoops. But did you know we're more than that? We're a cause. When you take your jump shot at the Y, 
someone else is getting job training. Take a cardio class while kids are in an after-school enrichment program. Practice your downward-facing dog as a teen practices her leadership skills. That's the why. We work with people no matter their age, income, or background and give them the opportunity to learn, grow, and thrive, all with one simple goal in mind, to strengthen our community. And we've got so much more that does just that. So while you might think of the Y as that place for lifting weights, we're also about lifting entire communities. Introducing the Y. We're so much more than a place. We're a cause. Visit ymca.net slash more. Welcome back to Middle East Forum Century Radio here on WWDB 860 AM. We've got about two or three minutes left to be able to finish up this broadcast. And I just want to give you a little bit of a preview for next week before you tune in. So, Wednesday, March 6, 2018, will be 33 days before the Israeli general elections move forward. We'll have interviews with Ayala Chaked, the Justice Minister for Israel, also with Naftali Bennett, the current Education Minister. We'll even try to get Benny Gantz, the leader of the opposition party, Kahol Avan, or the Blue and White Party. And the issues that the Israelis are talking about this year is not a referendum on security or economy or any of the other things that are facing and challenging the Jewish state, but a referendum on the ability for Benjamin Netanyahu to be prime minister for a fifth time. And if he is able to succeed in this election, he may very well become the longest serving prime minister of Israel in that country's history. We'll also be checking out some sites in Jerusalem. We'll be going to Tel Aviv. We'll be having some stories to tell you about Israel's most recent defense accomplishments. And also, only I think about two months from now, we can expect the release of the Kushner Peace Plan, that which has been designed by David Friedman, Jason Greenblatt, Jared Kushner, all at the auspices of the President of the United States to once and for all try to finally bring peace, a lasting peace between the Palestinians and the Israelis. However, I would be remiss if I didn't say that I am extremely skeptical about the likelihood of this happening. Ladies and gentlemen, have a great week. <laughs>